Hey, hey, water coolants. Welcome to a brand new episode of the podcast. Well, brand new in the sense that if you're listening to this in, say, 2027, this is not going to be a new podcast. It's going to be a rather old podcast. But anyways, a brand new episode for people listening to this in 2023. Or maybe, you know, you needed some time. You needed to listen to it in 2024, early 2024. But this is a <laughs> new episode. Um, today we are joined by journalist Lizzie Wade to talk about, I mean, once again, one of my favorite topics, history and the impact of history on our present, our future, the impact of our present on the past, and all of those things that need to be considered when we do have conversations about how the past is impacting our future. So in today's episode, in our first story, we talk about the discovery of a new language in modern day Turkey and the importance of how personal stories and personal narratives and the ability to tell one's own history impacts how you're remembered. You know, a pretty good example I use in the episode as someone from Minnesota, if I'm writing the history of, say, Wisconsin, it's going to be very different than somebody from Wisconsin writing the history of Wisconsin. And then in our second news story, we blame climate change on Britain, um, which I think rightfully so is we can all agree that's something that makes sense cool got it <laughs> no but anyways the conversation focuses on how do we take accountability for what's happened in the past who should be to blame for what's happened already so pretty fun one i just want to get right into it uh ladies and gentlemen without further ado this is episode 90 of water cooler talk podcast titled soprano responsibility with Lizzie Wade. Enjoy. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. You know, I love tangents. I mean, I'm ready to go on some tangents today. I mean, you've written about the Sopranos. We're going to talk about the Sopranos. <laughs> you know, these are all things that are kind of coming to play today. You don't. How do you get from climate change to the Sopranos? Well, listeners, you're going to have to stick in uh and find out. So, Lizzie, are you ready to jump into our first news story of the episode here? I'm ready. This first news story comes from Popular Mechanics Science, written by Darren Orff, September 26, 2023. Archaeologists found an entirely new language among the ruins of an ancient empire. And listeners, as I kind of told Lizzie before, you know, there's going to be a lot of pronunciations in this uh, news article here, and I think I'm going to nail every single one. Today, the ancient city of Hattusa, the capital of the Hittite Empire that ruled north-central Turkey during the Late Bronze Age, is a treasure trove of ancient languages. At the Bazkaya Hattusa archaeological site, evacuations over the past century have uncovered around 30,000 cuneiform tablets detailing the history, traditions, and society of the Bronze Age throughout Anatolia in Western Asia. Although most of the tablets found are written in the Hittite language, which is considered the oldest attested Indo-European language and later branched into English, many other regional languages can be found among these treasures. However, this year's excavations at the site revealed a surprising discovery, an entirely new language. Hidden in a particular ancient text is a recitation written in an unfamiliar language. According to the archaeologists, the text refers to an idiom from the language of the land of Kalasma, an area that would be located along the northwestern edge of the Hittite Empire's frontier. Although experts have no idea what this particular passage says, they can confirm that the language is a member of the Anatolia Indo-European family. 
Daniel Schwimmer, head of Ancient Eastern Studies at JMU, a university in Germany, stated, The Hittites were uniquely interested in recording rituals in foreign languages. As the name suggests, Indo-European languages make up a large family of languages that encompass modern countries in Europe and India. Many of these languages can trace their roots back to an original, quote-unquote, mother language. Experts believe that the, quote-unquote, mother language for the Indo-European language likely originated around the Black Sea, which would be now modern-day southern Ukraine. Obviously, the Black Sea is still there. On the south side of the Black Sea, evidence suggests that the Kalasma lies near northwestern Turkey, which is closer to the geographical area in which the Palaic, the language of northern Anatolia, was spoken. However, the newly discovered language has more in common with the Luwian language of southern Anatolia. Although only a mere sliver of the Kalasma language is known today, it's more than likely that much more evidence of this long-forgotten tongue is still waiting to be unearthed. All right, I think I got I think I got most on there. If you're like, oh yeah, you messed up one of those. I know, you know, Turkey, they're calling it, you know, that nowadays no longer Turkey, so I want to make sure I get that right as well. So, Lizzie, I want to I want to take this in a slightly different direction, you know, at first and then we'll kind of round it back to this article. Welcome to the Water Cooler Talk experience. This is what it's going to be all about. <laughs> Great. But following in the announcement of Oxford's word of the year for 2023 being Riz, you know, shorthand for charisma, you know, regardless of what you, I, or any of the listeners may think you know, of that word, these types of viral terms, you know, goblin mode the year before and vax the year before that have become very significant in the lexicon of modern times. And, you know, eventually thousands of years down the road will come to define our time. With that in mind and rounding it back, when discoveries like these are made, how does having these examples, you know, regardless of it being an idiom in this case, you know, contribute to writing these cultures' histories? Yeah, I mean, it's really important to have an ancient language and be able to read it. You know, there's a lot of ancient languages like this one that we still can't read that we just know existed. Um, which is also really cool, like linguistics, how they can tell that it's a different language, but they don't know mm -hmm. what it says is just really fascinating to me as well. I don't really know that much about it, but you can tell so much from a written language that you that you wouldn't be able to tell just from the archaeology. But, you know, also the archaeology can inform what you find out from the written language and vice versa. Ideally, in an ideal world, for every culture, you always have both. And hopefully that's what will happen one day for our culture when archaeologists are looking at us. They will have texts that we left behind, whether that's digitally or physically or whatever. But for so many cultures, that's not the case. And I think what's interesting here archaeologically is, you know, I'm not sure that if you looked at the site, you know, if you were to find a site where they spoke this language, could you tell that it was different from other Hittite sites, you know, like maybe from the archaeology, like you could say they seem to be coming from another place more recently, like they're bringing with them different customs, different burial traditions, different foods, or maybe they'd look exactly the same as every other town and region surrounding them. And like, you'd never know that they were actually speaking a different language. So, you know, on the one hand, it's really important to have these texts and it can be so illuminating about, you know, how all these different groups were interacting and getting to know each other and, you know, or diverging from each other. But on the other hand, you know, like written language has been throughout history, kind of a tool of the elites, you know, mm -hmm. like things are written down by people who get to decide what's going to be remembered. And they're written down for other people who are in that same kind of intellectual and cultural sphere. 
you know, so I think it's, it's important also to realize that like, when you're reading a text, that point of view can also be like inherently limiting. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you just go with what the text says, and don't look at the archaeology of regular people's houses, or like, how the site was laid out, what kinds of artifacts they were using, what kind of trade routes were around, where actual objects were coming from and how they were being made. Like that kind of stuff isn't always expressed in text. So it's incredible to know people's names, to know when they lived, mm -hmm. to know things about their lives. Because, you know, as people like we love hearing stories about other individual people and like it really can't be beat for like how much, how rich that information can be and like how connected it can make you feel. But, you know, throughout like all of history and, and really even now, not everybody is doing the writing and like even fewer people's writing is going to make it through thousands of years. And so I think it's like important to like hold those two perspectives mm -hmm. that are kind of contradictory at the same time. Like there's so much information you can glean from writing and yet it still is kind of inherently limited to one person's or one social positions point of view. When that, I think what you said kind of there at the end, it was so important because in this situation, you know, what was found was written by the Hittites and it was an idiom. And even going back to that example of Riz, I mean, if you don't have the context of what that means and another culture is writing that and writing, say, for example, in Gen Z, you know, kind of speak and another culture is writing in that type of lexicon and they don't have the context for what that means, they might miss things along the way. You know, you can say, you know, it's raining cats and dogs, but if you don't understand what that actually means, things might get lost. You know, right now I'm learning Spanish and there are words along the way where it's like, they don't exactly match up one-to-one -one from English to Spanish. And so you kind of have to find other words to describe something. And then, you know, if you kind of translate it back and forth, you know, meaning can get lost in that, you know, very easily uh, if you're not careful. As you were saying, you know, the different regions and kind of the, the difference between those regions. I mean, I even say here to the U.S., like, you drive, you know, a state over and it's a different dialect. And it doesn't mean, you know, there's a different language being spoken. We're living very similar lives, but just because of where we were raised and how we were raised and the people we were surrounded by, you know, we have these very, very different dialects that, you know, a few states over, even though you speak English, it might be a little harder to understand someone else speaking English just because, it, you know, it's a little more Eastern or it's a little more Southern or it's a little more Western. Even, you know, Midwest, people love when we say bag for some reason. I don't know. It sounds normal <laughs> to me, but there can be such a difference in a small uh, section of a place and especially here in Anatolia, you know, we're seeing you know, these multiple languages and now even, you know, a potential or not a potential, but a, you know, another language to show that, okay, there are more people in this area. And now we have an opportunity, at least through the words of the Hittites, to explore and try and find, you know, similar looking characters or, you know, even thinking of like the Rosetta Stone and the impact that had on, you know, being able to transcribe hieroglyphic, hieroglyphics, hieroglyphics. Am I saying that? Yes, hieroglyphics. Okay. But I believe on the Rosetta Stone, there was like three languages and one of them was like Greek. Three, yeah. And so they were able to transcribe it through that. And I mean, speaking of maybe later we can discuss this bad historical context. Obviously, that was found during, you know, Napoleon's campaign in Egypt and that new movie came out that just not a good representation of that whole situation. 
But yeah, obviously, you know, kind of getting to my point here, you know, the importance of context and, you know, as you were saying, who kind of has written the context is so important when we talk about writing the culture or the history of a culture. Even, you know, I used to watch the show on the History Channel, which is kind of funny, the Vikings, and it was obviously a drama. But you look at the Vikings and the Vikings, you know, conquered all these lands, but the people writing the stories were the monks. And so there's a very different perspective on, you know, that history because of who was writing and the impact on who was writing that history. Yeah, completely. And I think it's really, you know, you bring up a really interesting point, with, which is that this fragment of the new language or the unknown language was found within a larger Hittite text. And so it's like, who who wrote that? You know, you can imagine it being a Hittite scribe trying to capture this ritual that happened somewhere else. How good were they at that language? Did they speak it fluently? Like maybe not. Or maybe this was a person who was multilingual, was multicultural, and you know felt like this was the best way of capturing this other piece of themselves or this other piece of their community was like combining the languages. You know, I live in Mexico, I fluent in Spanish, and just like thinking about people who you know live on the border of the U.S. and Mexico, like there's often and, and I mean I don't live on the border, but I live on like. like a symbolic border, I guess, in my house. My husband's Mexican, I'm American. And so we speak Spanglish all the time, like in the same sentence, we'll go back and forth. And that just feels very authentic to us now. And it can be kind of like, especially after the quarantine, like going back out and talking to other people again in person, I was like, oh, wait, is that an English word that everybody uses? Or is that like one that that only we use in my house? And like thinking about you know, how those two languages are separated and combined in this text and who who was doing that and p- potentially, p- most likely, we'd ne- we'll never know. But, you know, if there's more text to be found, it's possible you can tell that this person was better at writing in this language than this other person. You know, like, that's another incredible thing about writing is, like, usually it was one person doing it. So it really is a look into one person's mind and you know, this kind of multilingual text could be someone who lived in those two languages and felt like this was the best way that they had of of expressing their relationship to each other. Or it could have be, you know, someone from the empire trying to sort of reflect, you know, I guess one word for it would be diversity and the other word for it would be like, who, who had they subjugated and like uh-huh, who, had, exactly. who, who were they controlling? And, you know, the text can end up looking the same and the and the motivations can be so different and you know sometimes you can you can glean that from a single text or from a corpus of texts um sometimes you can't but you know i think it is really important to remember you know how does it feel for us when we encounter another language how does it feel to speak two languages experiences now and 3000 years ago aren't directly comparable but i think there's a lot of like a lot a lot of how we feel like a lot of our inner lives and emotions and psychologies like well you can't you can't ever be sure that they would have felt exactly the same way mm-hmm. i think it's also doing a disservice to the people of the past to assume that we can never see we can never understand what it was like to be them because they were also human they also lived in you know situations that we also understand like empire like multicultural communities being multilingual, like those are all things that we have experiences with, or some of us have experiences with, and and thinking about kind of the emotional terrain of those experiences, and 
allowing for the possibility that people in the past also navigated similar emotional trains, I think is is really important. Well, even to that point, you know, you talked about you and your husband's relationship, like that's ultimately how languages developed. And, you know, obviously in a very small scale, but like, we don't know, like you were saying, we don't know the relationship between the Hittites and the Kalasmas, you know, and then also, as you were saying, you know, it's so important to kind of like when we are looking at history and we are looking at these documents to not put the context and the kind of, I think like the term is the Overton window, but like what's popular in the zeitgeist right now onto the context of, you know, historical documents and historical writings. Because if we do that, we kind of lose that. These aren't people that are living in, you know, 2023, now potentially going on 2020. Well, not potentially going on 2024. (laughs) It's going to be 2024 in a month. But these aren't people that lived in these same time periods. You know, they are people just like you and I. But, you know, yeah, like you were saying, they had they live very different lives and they had very different, ultimately similar, but at the same time, different forms of government and different forms of work and leisure and how they spent their time. And so it really is important to, you know, obviously, you know, maybe you can speak better to this, but when archaeologists do kind of go into these sites and they understand, you know, the entire context of it, you can't just take one thing and be like, all right, I'm building the history of a culture based on this one thing. For example, if I'm writing the history of Wisconsin as someone from Minnesota, it's probably not going to be, you know, a, a nice history of Wisconsin. I might say, you know, there's a lot of DUIs over there in Wisconsin. They really like to drink over there, but that's not Wisconsin's history. And so, you know, archaeologists have to do a good job of saying, all right, we're taking one piece and that's just a small piece of the puzzle to how we ultimately get into that initial question I asked you, how we write the history of this new culture we've now found. Yeah, definitely. I think that's that's one of the great things that archaeology can offer, you know, in conjunction with ancient writing or not, is really being able to see a culture or a society or a city or a settlement like see its whole existence from beginning to end. And the downside of that, of course, is that you don't have, like, it's very rare to have individual experiences represented in that, except for when Mm -hmm. you are able and allowed to study people's remains, which we can maybe get into separately. But, you know, like just taking the material culture archaeology, you can see long-term trends, you can see the beginning, middle, and end of the story. And, you know, that eagle eye zoomed out view can be really valuable in understanding in understanding the past and understanding all of the perspectives that went into perspectives and experiences that went into creating that past. Well, even, you know, yeah, exactly to, oh my gosh, it's like you're reading my mind, <laughs> but exactly to what you're saying and like these individual experiences, you know, obviously tying in a bit of this upcoming story, you know, that's how, that's how you tease in the middle of an episode there, Lizzie. Um, I do want to talk a bit about the impact of colonialism, more specifically tied to this story, its impact on you know, silencing indigenous voices or, you know, voices of those who have been lost throughout the, you know, trials and tribulations of history. You wrote a piece about the importance of inclusion for indigenous voices and said, they know more and different things about their ancestors and how long they've lived in their homelands than archaeologists do. Sometimes these ways of knowing complement each other, and sometimes they contradict each other, but they both exist and they both have interesting things to say about, and kind of paraphrasing the end, their history. Uh, in saying that, what importance do you find in making time, you know, especially in this case that you wrote about, you know, facing deadlines? 
to bring in those voices and include those, you know, direct experiences, you know, those individual experiences when they are available. Like writing, um, actually, archaeology can also be sort of a tool of power and in its relatively short modern history has really been a tool of colonial power and a way for like settler colonial culture in a place like the US to say, you know, we know more about the past of this place than the descendants of the people who actually inhabited that past. We get to write the story. We get to see the directions within it that serve us. And so I think that's like a really important thing to remember about archaeology, which is a science and a field of research that I love and find fascinating and like cannot get enough of. But, you know, it has its own histories and its own motivations and its own limitations as well. And, you know, especially in settler colonial states, like I'm not, I, I can't really speak to the current situation or history of Turkey, but with thinking about the US or Mexico or anywhere, you know, Australia, any settler colonial society, like there have been voices that have been have been erased and have been purposely excluded from the record that we're creating. Like what you like, this is a scientific record. Mm -hmm. And I think trying to do whatever part I can in my journalism to, you know, remember that there are other perspectives on these stories. There are other um, sources of knowledge. And yeah, sometimes those won't line up exactly, you know, in terms of like facts or in terms of emphases or, like millions of ways that they can sort of contradict and be in tension with each other. But I think, you know, it's tough, you know, because as a writer, like when I'm constructing a narrative or like saying like, these are the big takeaways from this new study or whatever, mm-hmm. you want it to be coherent. <laughs> so a reader can, can understand <laughs> yeah. it and say like, this is the important thing about it. But sometimes the important thing about it is that there are these different perspectives that kind of rub up against each other and include trying to include as many of those as possible. Like, obviously, I've done lots of stories that I, you know, sort of before and after I realized <laughs> that this was an important thing to try to be doing, you know, that didn't live up to my own standards. And, but, you know, just with every piece, I just have to think like, who is really being affected by this? Whose history is this? And is there a way for me to get their voice into this story? And sometimes there is, and sometimes there there isn't, you know, especially with deadlines. But who who has the most claim to this history, to this past? And is there a way to talk to them and include them? Exactly. It goes back to kind of what we we're saying. It, it's another piece of that puzzle, but it's a big piece of the puzzle. You know, even in, you know, the US, I think like 15 to 20,000 years ago, there's been, you know, people that have roamed North America, specifically the US, you know, going back to, I think the Culvis people were like 13,000 years ago or so. So there's like, tens upon tens of thousands of years worth of stories that we just don't know. Even within the connections of, you know, the indigenous tribes here in the US, being able to, like, I know obviously a lot of those stories have been passed down orally, but even being able to have those and have more context of, you know, what was life like back then, you know, even going to, you know, the Culvis people, you know, finding those Stone Age tools and being like, okay, this is how maybe they have done this or that, but then also being able to add in, you know, the oral stories and, you know, the traditions that are, you know, passed down from generation to generation are, you know, so important to once again, this idea of creating this bigger puzzle and being able to have these individual experiences to say, oh yeah, I can back up 
these facts with somebody being like, oh yeah, my ancestors told me about this and we've been doing this, you know, as tradition every year is so important. And when you're writing these stories, it's so important to take that extra time to be like, I got all this information. Now let me see if there's anybody who has actually lived or their family or their ancestors have experienced this information. And so I can add more context to once again, you know, if we just get this idiom, you know, it's raining cats and dogs and we're trying to transcribe it thousands upon thousands of years later, we're like, well, what? There's cats and dogs falling from the sky. <laughs> there might be potential there, but then awesome. We can have someone can bring in someone who, you know, ancestors that have been connected to that. And it can say, well, no, that was just a way to describe how, you know, sometimes it rains just so heavy that it feels like cats and dogs are kind of falling from the sky. Yeah, definitely. And I think about archaeologists I've talked to here in Mexico, and this is, you know, there are similar stories in I think every uh, settler colonial country where archaeologists are engaging with indigenous people in the south of Mexico and in Central America. There's tons of Maya ruins, and there's also millions of Maya people living today. And, you know, if you just look at the archaeology, if you just say, like, you can trace past beliefs and, pra and cultural practices and, you know, religions, and this figure of this god shows up here, and it also shows up here, and, like, that tells you something about the connection between those places and the the religious rituals and you know the maya wrote down a lot of a lot of things so we have that too like i think of um an archaeologist in chiapas who you know there's some rock art in a lake in chiapas that's like recently been exposed i think by falling water levels like as is happening in a lot of places <laughs> and you know he he has all the archaeological tools to trace these symbols see how they're connected through time to other sites, to other, how the culture changed and evolved. And, you know, but he also has connections to Maya communities today and he can take the people who live around there and say like, what does that mean? You know, and they're, and they just tell him, you know, <laughs> and like <laughs> that is a lot easier. <laughs> and, um, you know, obviously both tools have their uses and, you know, like what things mean today is not necessarily what things have meant in the past. So it's yep. like, it is important to have the the archaeological kind of archive helping you interpret uh, even what traditions and beliefs are today and how those things have evolved. But, you know, like the reason that we have been able to decipher so much of ancient Maya writing is because it is connected to Maya languages spoken today. Mm -hmm. It isn't the same language. There's things about the culture that have changed a lot and not just because of colonialism but the you know like have being able to trace those connections and also like recognize those connections when you when you see them and like allow them to exist which is like something that settler colonial archaeology hasn't always been able to do you know like there's a lot of you know especially in the past like disregarding of things as myth or thinking that kind of like pre-colonial and uh, indigenous societies lived in this kind of like unchanging mythical time space that mm -hmm. like they didn't really recognize their own history, like and how their own cultures had changed, like which is an absolutely ridiculous assumption, but is one that you know people made yeah, for centuries over and <laughs> like, over again. No, yeah, yeah I've, I mean <laughs> I've talked about the Benin bronzes and how you know the UK kind of treated them as like savages to take over their lands. I think it was like palm oil was the thing they're going after. But then these, you know, 
beautiful bronze or I don't know if they're exactly bronze, but these statues and art comes out and you realize, no, they weren't savages. They were regular everyday people just like you and me. But the PR of history said they were. So it was okay for, you know, the UK to go in and murder and conquer their people. And I know you've even talked about, you know, talking about this, uh, allowing these connections to exist and the importance of it. You know, you've talked about your time witnessing Colombian geologists studying their own country's volcanic past, you know, for the first time with unrestricted access or, you know, even your own experience revisiting the Odyssey in light you know, of all of these new examples and new lenses. How does your mindset change when presented with, you know, this new information, these new lenses, and how can that mindset be presented to encourage others almost to view, you know, the quote unquote classics of history, you know, the Benin bronzes and the Benin people are savages, Native Americans are savages, you know, whether it be those historical examples, historical stories, you know, as we're kind of retelling these stories, you know, the the um, example of the Napoleon movie. Like, how do we go about encouraging people to look at those cases through a more accurate lens? Because, like, they're taught one way in, you know, history class and 11th grade, for example, but they're taught, you know, one way a long time ago, and that just sticks in their mind. And when presented with new information, I think this gets to the broader conversation around how people, when presented with new information that kind of conflicts with their already existing worldviews, they tend to either come out with like, hey, fuck you, I'm right, you're wrong, or kind of, you know, shell back and be like, I don't want to be a part of this conversation. And so within your experiences of having, you know, obviously with the Colombian geologist and even within all the experiences you've had outside of that, you know, what's been the importance of being able to see new information and take it into context and add this accurate lens? And how can we kind of present that to all of these people that sometimes may not be open to seeing it with a new lens? That was a very long-winded question. <laughs> Welcome to, once again, the Water Cooler Talk experience. <laughs> I love it. I think I have sort of two like absolutely contradictory things that I try to do personally when when I think about new information about the past. And one is, you know, one is like the reason that I love writing about archaeology and anthropology in the first place is that it kind of feels like writing and reading and learning about I kind of compare it to speculative fiction sometimes, you know, like you can see like mm, science fiction and fantasy, like, like you can see all of these different ways that people have been human in the past and organized their societies and all these different things they've believed in and family structures that they've had. And it can, and it can be like just some, as much of an imaginative lift as like writing a fantasy novel can be because there's so, you know, with archaeology, there can be so many gaps. So you like really do have to use a lot of imagination to, to, to see these things in the past and to like sort of think about how they would have felt and, and really take them seriously as, you know, as real possibilities and real things that worked for people and not just like sort of these, I think there, there's a real tendency, especially in the United States to kind of see like all of human history as like this march of progress with like where we are now as kind of like the pinnacle mm -hmm. and everything that happened before is like something that didn't work and failed. Yep. And I just don't think that's true. Like a lot of them, a lot of those societies did end, did change, did transform. I mean, all societies will transform given enough time. <laughs> and, but like that doesn't necessarily mean that they were failures at all. Like some of them lasted for thousands of years. And, you know, thinking about those ways of life, not as 
like some failed experiment or like blip in the past before we like figured out something better. But like things that people really lived in for like generations and generations and really felt committed to and believed in and taking that difference seriously. But also, you know, at the same time, like not being afraid to think like, how would it have felt to live in that? Like, how would I have felt? Mm -hmm. And there you can't like take it for granted that whatever your experience might have been would be like, if you were to time travel, for example, you'd come like with all this baggage from the future and like obviously you wouldn't have that if you lived at the time. But like just just take all of these people, ancient and modern, as full humans who are like just as complex, just as imaginative, just as um, interesting as you are and the people that you know are, you know, and give them the respect of seeing them as like full people who are like fully capable of also imagining the past present and future and like also thinking about how they wanted to live and also navigating power structures and imposing them or you know being impressed by them and and just figuring it out and I like there's like almost anything that's happening in the world today has happened in the past like obviously in it doesn't look quite the same but mm -hmm. I really think like emotionally we have to try to get closer to these past people like there's been so much distancing from them. And, and that's partially because, you know, as archaeology became more and more scientific, that's sort of like standard scientific practices to try to distance yourself from the thing that you're studying. So you don't influence it too much. Um, or your point of view doesn't influence it too much, which is important and is also very important to be aware of mm -hmm. doing that to too much of an extreme. Also, really does a disrespect to these past cultures as seeing them as something that was kind of static or unchanging, or not as complicated, not not inhabited by people who are just as complicated as we are today. That was absolutely beautiful. <laughs> I think that's, you know, the perfect way to wrap up that first conversation. I think, you know, as hosts, I got to be aware of like, if I add anything, I'm going to ruin what is already beautiful. <laughs> I would like to welcome to the show, writer Lizzie Wade, serving as a contributing correspondent for Science Magazine from her home of more than 10 years in Mexico City. Lizzie's work centers on archaeology and anthropology. Her focus explores how we imagine the past and why it matters. At the moment, she is hard at work finishing a book about past apocalypses and how they shaped our today. Lizzie, welcome to Water Cooler Talk. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So Lizzie, to your book, it sounds like you were able to jump into the meat and potatoes kind of in the midst of the pandemic. I think you had mentioned you literally sewed the proposal like the summer leading into 2020. But what caught my attention from your writing during that time was your emphasis on, quote, you know, apocalypses are not endings, but transformations. You know, while living through, and I'm sure you've been asked this question, but it's going to go in a slightly different direction. Once again, welcome to Water Cooler Talk. You know, while living through a catastrophe that will be, you know, included alongside the Black Death and the Spanish flu, it seems you came to a conclusion of setting the intention to intentionally build into the future, you know, steering clear of that common refrain of like, Oh my gosh, we heard it so freaking many times, you know, returning back to normal. As you've explored other apocalyptic events in history in, you know, researching this book, you know, 
potentially maybe the conquest of the Aztecs and Incas by Spain, you know, the fall of the Roman Empire, which I got to include because all guys, that's all we think about, uh, you know, Mount Toba's eruption, whether, you know, you believe that happened or not, you know, even the aftermath of World War II leading to World War, or sorry, the other way around, the aftermath of World War One that makes more sense historically, the aftermath of World War One leading to World War II. How has, you know, experiencing something like COVID-19 provided you clarity on the importance and sometimes challenges of trying to build a better tomorrow through devastation. It's obviously really complicated and we're still finding our way through it. Like something definitely that I learned looking at these past apocalypses during this time is that it's been three, three and a half years since it began, four years, I guess, since the real beginning. And like people are don't want to talk about it. They don't want to read about <laughs> yeah. it. But like, it feels like it happened a long time ago. And in some ways, you know, of course, I understand that like this Christmas feels a lot different than Christmas three years ago. But at the same time, you know, I get it, you know, pulling on that thread of like how archaeology can kind of see the whole story. We won't know the whole story, probably in our lifetimes, like it really will take that long to settle out throughout the world and our, our society. And I think that future archaeologists might see things that we can't even imagine yet that haven't certainly haven't happened yet and we're not expecting to happen either. And I mm -hmm. think that they'll be able to connect it to the pandemic or or they'll want to connect it to the pandemic in ways that we're not quite ready to do or not able to do now. But I think, you know, in thinking about these past events, like some of the ones I'm looking at are like the sea level rise at the end of the last ice age, um, mm -hmm. collapse, societal collapse, which is sort of when like a big society breaks up into smaller pieces like the Hittite, you know, the end of the Hittite empire. Yeah. Uh, for example, the Black Death, colonial, European colonialism, all of these are different, are very different events, but they all sort of created this before and after. And I think something that archaeologists can see when they look at the whole trajectory of these events, they can see that divide and they can also see the transformation, like what parts of the before survived into the after, like what parts became the seeds for the for how societies recovered, for how kind of the ne the next round of societal growth. Mm -hmm. Obviously, those things are always connected, but they're they're really the moment where you get to stop, where you have to stop and say, like, what is it that we've been doing, and do we want to keep doing it? The that can be um, like in ancient Egypt, the end of the old kingdom, you know, which coincided with with climate change and and political instability and they kind of like fed into this feedback loop and the state broke apart and you know that was really quite devastating for people who ran the state you know <laughs> like mm -hmm. pharaohs and scribes they wrote down really horrific memories of this period you know but when you look at regular people's houses like how they were living doesn't really seem to change that much you know or like you know some people who lived kind of like in the boondocks of Egypt, like, and would really have had no path to power or authority or importance, like, became really important people in their communities and, like, helped, you know, like, I think you could sort of see them as, like, kind of forming these, like, charitable local institutions that got people through these hard years of low floods and, you know, increase the approach of the desert, things that you can see happening um, in the 
paleo environmental record, or you could sort of see them as like warlords, like <laughs> seizing mm-hmm. control of yeah. their own little territory as as like the larger state kind of collapsed around them. And I think there's, of course, truth to both of those narratives. But you know, those opportunities, like there's always opportunities in in an apocalypse. And sometimes those opportunities are opportunities that everyone wished they'd never had, you know, and I think mm-hmm. we can all identify some things that we, you know, remember, if not exactly fondly, like from the quarantine <laughs> and high pandemic, like ways that our life changed that we said, wow, I never, I wish this has never happened, but I'm so glad to be experiencing what I'm experiencing right now. Like whether that was like sort of the slowdown of, you know, the pace of life, the room to think about social justice issues, the urgency, like how urgent those things felt at that moment as like things were, they felt like they were kind of on the verge of collapse. Like, and you know, when things are on the verge of collapse, the thing to do is to think about how you can put them back together and like, Mm -hmm. whether you want to put them back together in the way that you were doing before. And like, maybe Maybe some people do. Some people are always going to want that. You know, that's mostly like the people in power who are served by the old order are always going to want to go back to that. Yeah. But other people can say, actually, that didn't work for us. Like, and we can we can see that now and we're going to make something new and, and take what we take what we what was helpful and we enjoyed and what we need to preserve from the past and, and make it into something new. But again, that process does not take four years. It takes like a hundred. <laughs> it, takes, <laughs> so. it takes some time. No, even going back to, I thought you really kind of nailed it in the previous article there, Lizzie, when you talked about these people going through these, you know, quote unquote, apocalyptic events, they're not static. You know, these are people just like you and I, you know, even like to those examples I shared, I mean, we can focus on the Roman Empire if you want. I mean, that's totally fine. It's kind of cool to talk about. But even, you know, the ends of the the Roman Empire, it's just like Rome didn't just stop. It continued on. It just, yeah, like you said, it transformed. It looked different. You know, even the conquest of the Aztecs and the Incas, I mean, you know, that was a, a very unfortunate situation. But those cultures still existed in different ways and different forms. And I think that it is so important that, you know, when you think about these events, they're not just events that stop time and then it restarted with a completely new clean slate. A lot of those same issues are still issues that continued, maybe more prevalent, maybe less prevalent. You know, even like speaking to something like Pompeii, like, boom, that's <laughs> yeah. apocalyptic event. You know, that's the prime example. That's Hollywood making of a, a event like that. But we still have people of um, that might have lived in the city and were lucky enough to be away traveling that period or, you know, family members that lived in different areas of the world or even, you know, obviously within the city itself, you know, what we were able to preserve through <laughs> that apocalyptic situation, you know, that culture persisted. It looked much different moving forward and it didn't have the strength it did, you know, before Mount Suvius, I believe, was the the volcano erupted but still move forward. And it still, you know, became another part of history, even going back to that language story, talking about how these languages in um, modern day Turkey, Turkey, how they kind of built from this tree to eventually get to, you know, what English was like, it might not be exactly what it once was, but it's transformed into what it is today. And like you, you know, said, it's like, it's, ever building. We're not at the peak of what history is. You know, in a thousand years, they're going to say, 
what the fuck were they doing in 2023? <laughs> yeah, completely. And I think going back to the, the classic Maya collapse, which, mm-hmm. you know, was a period of about 300 years. So just think about that, like it took 300 years, like that's a lot of generations, especially if people were living to on average, like 30 or 40. I think it probably felt like climate change feels to us at the time, like this thing that you like was happening kind of always somewhere else. You're like, is it going to come here? You know, because there's mm-hmm. a lot of warfare um, in the southern Maya cities. Those places start getting abandoned. There's refugees that sort of move north. The northern cities in the Yucatan grow throughout this period, you know, which like is a sort of contradiction with how we, a lot of us hear about the classic Maya collapse having to do with drought. But mm-hmm. like throughout this period, it was the driest part of the region where these cities were really growing. So like, what's going on there. And and it just took a long time. And there were so many transformations throughout this period. But really, what was what was different before and after was the system of government and sort of like the center of gravity, like cultural gravity kind of had shifted a lot. But the, you know, before this sort of widespread transformation and collapse, there were these divine kings, sort of like how we think of the pharaohs in Egypt, mm-hmm. ruling things. And afterwards, there wasn't. And it was more um, collaborative, like more councils, more kind of towns that were connected to each other, but not like formed into like a state or like anything bigger, you know. And obviously, people had had experiences with those things or, you know, cultural memories of that. And they were deciding to live in a, a different way. And But there were still many, 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 probably millions of Maya people when the Spanish arrived, which was for four or 500 years after this collapse. And there are still many millions of Maya people today. And so, you know, there's a sense like, and that archaeology has definitely contributed to of there is this grand culture and it reached its pinnacle and then something catastrophic happened. Today, we understand that thing to be climate change. Mm -hmm. Like people have understood it in different ways and they never recovered. You know, they never got back to their former glory. And I think that that, not only does that symbolically empty out this place that was then later went on to be colonized, you know, like mm-hmm. as much in the same way that we that our myths about empty land in the U.S. West, like symbolically remove everyone who did actually live there in in favor of the people who are moving in and encountering nothing. Um, so you know, if you can locate the end of the Maya civilization in like the year 1200, it doesn't matter what happened to people in the year 1523, you know, like, and we can see what kind of biases that narrative serves and what it goes on to create and make invisible. But also, you know, it really like locks us in to one way of viewing the past, like this march of progress up to a pinnacle and then this fall. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't take into account even what the march felt like, you know, (laughs) like how, Mm -hmm. how slow, how confusing it probably was at the time how people dealt with refugees moving around the landscape for like a long, long time. How did grandparents' memories get incorporated into what their grandchildren experienced? Like how did things kind of shift back and forth over time, even though in this great narrative, like only one thing was happening, but like, of course, many things were always happening at the same time. Yeah, that a hundred percent a grant. I think you, you nailed it there. Uh, Lizzie, before we move on, myself and Water Cooler Talk have embarked upon a mission to give back to various parts of the community. 
and those who have helped build our show to where it stands today. For each new episode of the podcast, the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent. On the day of their episode going live, Watercooler Talk will give a donation to that charity in honor of the guest, as well as a global platform to spread a message of love, hope, and togetherness. And we invite you listening to this episode to join in to help spread that message to your own personal audience. Lizzie, your charity of choice for today's episode is the Indigenous Journalists Association. Can you share with us the significance of their work and the importance of empowering Indigenous voices, kind of continuing the conversation we've been having? Yeah, so the Indigenous Journalists Association is a professional organization for Indigenous journalists. They started in the U.S. and Canada, but have recently expanded to include a more global and international mission. And so they provide fellowships to students up to, you know, support professional development opportunities for mid and even late career indigenous journalists. And, you know, I think over 70% of journalists in the U.S. are white and a tiny, tiny, I think less than 1% of journalists are indigenous. And I just think the stories that those communities and nations have experienced and are continuing to experience are just really valuable, really important. And we need to like, we can't just have journalists like me dropping into these communities and thinking that we can, we know enough after interviewing like five people over the course of a few hours to like <laughs> know enough to write a story that really captures their um, perspective and history. And, you know, I think supporting uh, Indigenous journalists to do that work themselves and to move into leadership roles in newsrooms to become really important voices on these issues, both locally nationally and internationally is a really important way of sort of broadening the perspectives that we hear from, broadening the perspectives that our society considers important and valuable. And I think we just really need people, like people who aren't like me need to be doing this work. And I think, you know, it's my, it's always my, my pleasure to support organizations that share that goal. Well, no, I appreciate you uh, being able to bring them on the show today and kind of talk a little more about, uh, what they've been doing. But all right, Lizzie, are you ready to get into our final news story of the episode? Blame the UK for all of our issues in the world. Yes, I'm ready. I'm re- I'm so ready. <laughs> <laughs> this story finds its way from the Guardian Environment, written by Damien Carrington, November 26, 2023. British Empire's past emissions double UK's climate responsibility. An analysis released by Carbon Brief, an award-winning UK website specializing in the science and policy of climate change, stated that the United Kingdom is responsible for almost twice as much global heating as previously thought when its colonial history is taken into account. Currently, the UK's domestic emissions account for about 3% of total world emissions when dated back to 1850, but when responsible for emissions in countries once under the British rule, 46 countries will be included under that rule, the emission figure rises to 5.1%. Not quite double, but as a journalist, you probably know an editor had to write this title for click, so we don't blame you here, Damien, it's the editor's fault. Additional emissions come largely from the destruction of forests in formerly colonized countries, with the biggest contributors coming from pre-independence India, Myanmar, and Nigeria. These updated figures move the UK from 8th to 4th on the list of nations with the biggest historical emissions behind the US, of course, in number one, baby, at 21%, maybe not a good thing to celebrate, China in number two at 12%, and Russia in third at 9.3%. 
The climate crisis, which has led to record temperatures being shattered in 2023, is predominantly the result of carbon emissions from richer nations. However, as we've kind of been talking throughout this episode, the worst impacts of intensifying extreme weather are hitting poorer nations, which have very low emissions. Dr. Simon Evans of Carbon Brief stated, Our new analysis offers a thought-provoking fresh perspective on questions of climate justice. It is well known that colonial powers extracted natural resources from colonized lands to support their economic and political power. But the link to historical emissions has never been quantified until now. Our findings reinforce the significant historical responsibility of developed countries for current warming. Historical emissions are significant because there is a direct relationship between the amount of carbon dioxide released over time and the level of heating at the Earth's surface. This means even CO2 emissions from, say, 170 years ago continue to contribute to the heating of the planet. Zari Hididu of ActionAid UK stated, As the fourth highest historic carbon emitter in the world, it has a historic responsibility, talking about the UK, to address climate change, but currently its actions don't match its words. In response, a UK government spokesman stated, The analysis ignores the fact that the UK is taking decisive action to cut emissions far faster than any other major economic power. The UK currently accounts for only 1% of annual global emissions, keeping 1.5 degrees Celsius in reach requires us to focus on the future, which is why we're investing billions to support the transition to net zero and reduce emissions yet further. So kind of, Lizzie, here, continue our conversation about the impact of indigenous voices. You know, you share the fact that the U.S. indigenous communities have lost nearly, if not more than, you know, 99% of their documented historical land. When reading articles like this, what thoughts go through your mind as we continue to hear facts after facts that, you know, clearly outline the impact of, you know, taking and taking have had on, you know, less developed nations and even to that point of them being less developed because of the need to take more and more. You know, you even talk about it in your Aeon article that we originally connected uh, over about the importance of approaching any potential alien life uh, that may be, you know, potentially discovered down the line, if not already here, just saying. And, you know, really going in with the intention of not once again falling into the mindset of that, you know, resource exploitation when we do eventually have those connections with potential alien life, you know, so well, it's kind of going through your mind after reading an article like this. Yeah, I think like a lot of people, you know, and I, I sort of default to this view as well, because of the country and culture I grew up in, like, a lot of kind of progressive leftist people who, you know, are concerned about climate change, think that it's real, <laughs> know that it's real, <laughs> and want to do something about it. You know, there's this sense that like, humans are the enemy of the environment. There's no good way to be human on earth. Like you're always going to change it, change the ecosystems. It's where like a destructive force, an invasive species is sometimes how it's described. And I think I've even written an article about that in the past. And like, there's this sense that like, we are the problem, which doesn't really leave you a lot of places to go, right? Like, it's like, okay, like if humans are the problems, like, I guess we need less hum fewer humans, like, which, you know, like, maybe we do, like, I don't like, I'm not uh, entirely opposed to, <laughs> to that idea. But I think a lot of the problems that we see in the world a lot, and a lot of the ways that we like, think about quote, unquote, natural ways for humans to interact with the earth and with the ecosystems around them, are actually products of colonialism and like a colonial mindset that we're still, 
you know, many, many, many of us, including me, are still sort of like indoctrinated into and carry around without really interrogating like where it came from. And that the reason that natural resources are there is to like use them and to extract. And there's no end to what the earth will provide. And there's like no consequences for taking as much as we want at any moment, you know? And I think that we kind of assume that that's what being human means. Mm -hmm. And I just think stories like this really remind us that like, that's not the only way to have been human. That's not the way that most people have been human for the whole history of our species. Like humans do change their environments. Like that is kind of a universal, but they don't always extract everything that an ecosystem has to offer with like no concern (laughs) for Mm -hmm. the present or future. And that transformation and management of environments can happen without that extraction. It can happen in a way that makes the ecosystems livable Mm -hmm. for people and more livable for the animals and plants and microbes and everything else that inhabit them. And and I do think it brings into more perspective that, you know, obviously, like I have a background in dealing with, you know, human wildlife conflict and, you know, how ecosystems are balanced. Like I, I do truly believe that humans are an integral part of the ecosystem. But to what you're saying, I do think we are a big problem because we're not realizing our impact of our part of being in the ecosystem. And we're taking and taking and more and more, you know, we're taking these finite resources and trying to frame it as, oh, they're infinite resources when they're not. But I do think we have a very large, you know, portion to play in how ecosystems are balanced. And, you know, one of the things you quickly find out within like working in the human wildlife conflict space is how easy it is for those ecosystems to go out of balance if one thing has changed. You know, we're seeing that right now with, you know, climate change and the hurt that it puts on lesser developed nations that often rely on agriculture and, you know, fishing, for example, which are the two things that climate change really kind of fucks over right away. And so, you know, when these, you know, less developed nations are reliant, you know, as far as their economic reliance on these things that are directly infected by climate change, you start to see these impacts more you know, severely, you know, we're seeing a lot of migrants trying to find new places to live. They don't want to leave their homes, but they're like, well, I can't farm in these lands anymore. Like I can't survive in these lands. I need to go somewhere else. I need to support my family. And that's something that any one of us would do. What is something I can do to make sure my family is safe, they are fed, and there is a roof over their head? And so when people talk about, especially it's a very popular conversation to have in the US, you know, the treatment of migrants, it's like, if you're in that same position, how would you like to be treated? You know, flip that script. Like, what is that reaction that you would like? But I think as humans being a part of this ecosystem, we really have to be cognizant of, obviously, as I said, our our impact and, you know, not taking more than we need. I think we can look back at indigenous tribes, whether in the US, Australia, Europe, Spain, and really see like, hey, these were people that were able to live within their means without overtaking from you know, the earth, and they lived very successfully for a very long time and understand maybe it's the way we're developing as humans in the ecosystem that's the issue. And we need to have this massive change in how we look at that. And maybe, you know, I talk about a lot, instead of building wide, we build up or we build down or whatever are ways that we can understand that, yes, we are an integral part of this ecosystem. 
And we're also an integral part of making sure that ecosystem is balanced. So people down the line, you know, future generations have a livable earth. There's a fear that changing how we slash like the dominant culture and society like interacts Mm -hmm. with other people, what interacts with the ecosystem, like there's this great fear of what we will lose, you know, like what will we lose if we stop depending so much on oil? What will we lose if we let these migrants into our country, you know, and what will I lose? And (laughs) and I just Mm -hmm. think- What will I lose is so important, yeah. And you can see in these- in these stories that like, like, I think it's really important to talk about what we can gain, you know, and like going, tying back in a little bit to the COVID conversation, like what could stopping or changing our framework away from research extraction? What does that give us? Like, yes, of course, like, I don't want to deny that there may be uncomfortable transitions and changes Mm -hmm. and things that are, are given up like individually and societally, like, but I just think those can be so easily outweighed by all of the things that we gain from living in a different way and just imagining the possibilities, you know, and I think like one thing that colonialism has done is just lock us into this story that is killing us, you know, Mm -hmm. like, and everybody like it's not it's it's killing the the people who live in these poor countries that were exploited and taken advantage of. So the rich countries could become the rich countries that they are today. It's killing the elites, (laughs) like it's killing, like it's killing our empathy it's killing our sense of the future and why we just like refuse to let that way of seeing the world go is a little bit mystifying to me, but I think it just goes so it just shows you how deeply ingrained it is. Like it's so deeply ingrained that we can't even see it. Like we just think that's the way that things are. And like really that's the way that colonialism constructed the world, the way that colonialism told us that it had to be. And like that was always a lie and it's still a lie. And I just think there are just so many other opportunities that we have if we can just like see the structure of the world for what it is, which is like totally arbitrary and destructive and based on an unjust and racist past. And like, mm-hmm. we don't have to keep going. <laughs> like we can, yeah. we can change it. Like, and I think colonialism changed everything and like, we don't have to keep going. Well, I mean, oh my gosh, I'm loving that you're saying this because it perfectly brings up the Sopranos and your written piece <laughs> about it. It's like, oh my goodness. It's like, did we plan that we didn't? That's, you know, just how the show works. But in that writing, when you talked about Sopranos, you highlight the show's critique of denial. You know, Tony is seen, Tony Soprano, the main character, is seen as this representation of, you know, the toxic nature of the time, the ability to, you know, really blame everyone but himself, someone who's comfortably living within the delusion of the time. But what I really liked about that piece is you conclude it with a focus on the show's resurgent among, you know, younger viewers. I recently just watched it for the first time like a year or two ago and how they've come to recognize the absurdity, you know, of a middle-aged man caught in a system that he inadvertently supports. And you focus on the optimism of the future being able to create alternatives, no longer to live in the delusion of ignorance. They can't really, right, with all this information really coming out. You know, as we come to hold more individuals, companies, countries, you know, accountable for their climate action, what role do you see kind of the younger generation in being a key core to turning that boat around? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just really so inspiring and important, the work that people, you know, in the generation below me are doing. I'm 37. You know, I think that we all knew 
that things were pretty screwed up. (laughs) And, you know, it's not to say that millennials did not do anything like we did. Uh We were, we came of age in the tail end, like in the Sopranos period of this time period where you thought, okay, well, things don't seem that great. But if I just follow all of the rules perfectly and do everything like, and be the best and succeed within the terms of the system, I'll be okay. And I think that that has not um, borne out to be the case for many of us. And even when we do succeed in the terms of the system, we end up feeling empty and alone and unfulfilled. And it's like, well, I did everything you told me to do. Like, why do I feel like this? Mm -hmm. Even if the, you know, external trappings of success are there and they aren't for many people. But I think with people younger than us and people who have yet, you know, much younger than us, like my friend's kids, I think that that myth or that belief has been revealed to have been hollow the whole time. Mm -hmm. You know, like there is no individual thriving in a system that oppresses so many people and harms so many people. And, you know, even if you are like the one person to succeed in it, like it hollows you out from the inside, you know, and like Mm -hmm. it keeps you separate from community. It keeps you terrified of letting anyone else in of take of losing what you have so precariously gained. And like, I just think that young people now can see that that is not how they want to live mm-hmm. and not how they want, they want the future to be. And I, and I really hope that they're able to basically like gain enough power in time to be able to like turn this, <laughs> turn this ship around. Um, I mean, it's going to happen eventually, but I, I'd like to see some big changes in my lifetime. And I'm, I'm not sure that it'll happen that fast, you know, going back to the Black Death and things. But well, yeah, even, you know, I'm a millennial as well, 20, I'm kind of on the cusp there. But the narrative was always said that, you know, you work hard, you study hard, you go to a college, you get a college degree, and you'll have a, you know, job that can afford a house that can afford to support a family that can support, you know, retirement, and you'll be good. And then we did that and we've come to realize, oh yeah, everything that you promise isn't there. Like like you said, you know, it is there for some people, but for the majority of people, it's not. And even getting to the story and kind of that, you know, initial lead question I posed to you, you know, like who the fuck is responsible for all this <laughs> shit? You know, as a white man, I look at conversations around reparations and the return of native lands, you know, restitution of uh, cultural artifacts. And I'm like, well, I didn't do those things, but I do understand that I've benefited from those things. And I think that's where a lot of these younger generations are really doing such a good job in understanding and acknowledging that these things actually happen because that's something that I think older generations, for some reason, they're like, well, it didn't really happen. You know what I mean? But the younger generations have been really doing a good job, you know, acknowledging that these things have happened and acknowledging the impact of these things. And maybe, you know, the fix isn't a monetary fix, but they understand like, okay, we can go through legal routes. We can, you know, go through supporting, for example, creators in those spaces and helping them share their stories and share their art. And I'm just really glad to see a lot of those younger generations really nailing what it's going to take to make those dramatic changes that we so desperately need. And kind of, you know, us as millennials, we had to kind of live through the shitstorm. 
But what I also really appreciate, and it's, oh, it's not perfect every single time, you know, it's always still the, I'm not going to listen to you, old man. But the younger generation are better listeners. And I really think that's going to be so helpful as we have to figure out how we do kind of fix all this shit that at least they're willing to listen to the people that have experienced it and can take in that context, you know, connecting back to that first story, they're able to take in all these pieces and form the bigger puzzle and know what to do with that bigger puzzle once it's finished. Yeah, definitely. You know, and I think just being able to see through some of these narratives that have come to seem so impenetrable or natural Mm -hmm. or ossified, you know, and seeing them as for what they are, just a story, like just one way of seeing the world, seeing the past, like one way of seeing the past is like, India is responsible for like whatever, however much of the historical emissions since the 19th century. And like, so India pays this much for like the islands Mm -hmm. that are sinking in the Pacific or whatever. And then another way of looking at it is saying like, like, why did those forests get cut down? Like, who was doing it? And Mm -hmm. who was deciding? And it was, you know, it was the British Empire and and sometimes not even an empire. It was the companies, you know, like um, that were obviously like completely intertwined with with the governments and being able to see where the fault lies clearly and be able to see how how acknowledging that and recognizing that is like the door to a better future you know like i write a lot about repara- uh, repatriation and which is the return of indigenous ancestors remains and indigenous objects and artifacts and belongings to the tribes that they are connected to in some cases you know, straightforwardly stolen from some places kind of excavated um, without permission in the past and returning those things from museums to the people that they're connected to and who care about them as their ancestors. You know, a lot of the narrative around repatriation has been and still often is like a narrative of loss. Like, what are these museums losing? What is science losing? Mm -hmm. What future knowledge will we not be able to have access to because we can, like can't do whatever study we want on the skeleton anymore. But really, when you talk to people who are involved in repatriation, like not indigenous people and the people who work in museums who do this work, like what they always talk about is like repatriation fills up the museum. Like it's the starting point for a new relationship. It's the acknowledgement of past wrongdoings, the opening to rebuild trust, and those relationships will create so much more knowledge than hoarding that mm-hmm. skeleton and <laughs> <Yep>. like <laughs> violating it in for you know decades to come like will allow you to do like like we're so focused on what will be lost that we just can't see that like if we can acknowledge this is an open door and if we walk through it like there's so many great things on the other side and i just think if we like stay in the narrative of fear and endings and loss like that you know, we'll, we'll be missing out on all that great stuff. And like, don't we want something better than what we have now? I think you perfectly said it, you know, and kind of wrapping up the story, you know, what can we gain? That's how we should be looking at it, not what can we lose? I think that's a, a good way to look at it. Lizzie, I want to thank you for taking the time to share your perspective on some of these strangest and most bizarre news stories the world has to offer in an engaging, productive and meaningful conversation. Listeners, if you'd like to continue to hear more thoughts from Lizzie, you can do so by following her through her website www.lizziewade.com. There you can subscribe to her weekly-ish newsletter, the Lizzie Wade Weekly, where she recently shared some reflections on the ancestors of corn and the benefits of Mac Whisper for transcriptions. 
Once again, that's www.lizzywade.com. And of course, those links will be included in the episode description and on our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. So Lizzie, in one of your Substack articles, uh, you explore the concept of creating more time, specifically, you know, in the context of finishing your manuscript and describe it as this energizing experience, you know, putting trust in yourself that by doing what you love, it doesn't necessarily consume time in a way that's, you know, draining, but instead actually generates energy. And I do believe, especially for like any creative aspirations, sometimes that first thought does go towards like, is this a waste of time? Like, why am I doing this? How have you refocused yourself, you know, shifted your mindset to understand first, obviously, this task does need to get done, uh, but also ensuring you still, you know, find joy in that process? Yeah, you know, it's not always straightforward, especially with deadlines <laughs> and illnesses and pandemics and etc. But, you know, I think like we all have something to contribute to the world and we all have like different ways of doing that. I feel like my way of doing that is writing and being okay with not knowing where things are going, being okay with making mistakes. Like I make mistakes my mistakes get published with my name on them, you know, and like, hopefully they get corrected. <laughs> oh, I, I, I 100% understand that one. <laughs> and like, that is scary and unpleasant, but like just doing it anyway. And when I think about kind of untangling from perfectionism, like, for me, the most powerful experience that I've had in that realm is was learning another language as an adult, like I learned Spanish when I moved to Mexico City when I was in my 20s, just that sense of like going out there and truly like not knowing what was going to happen, like no matter how mundane the interaction I was going to have was going to be like the pharmacy, the supermarket, whatever. And like, just truly like that sense that like anything could happen, like I had no idea what it, it was going to mm -hmm. be. And like, I had no choice, but to know that I was going to fail at communicating and just like do it anyway. And then the more times I did that, all of those accumulated failures transformed into success at the end, you know, like, or, you know, it's not even the end, it's like still ongoing. And, and writing's kind of the same. It's like, you just have to, you just have to try every time and every time it's going to feel impossible. And every time you're not going to know where you're going. And that's just, that's how it is, you know, <laughs> like, that's mm -hmm. not something to try to avoid. I think like a lot for a long time, I thought, if I could just like track my time in the right way, or like understand how many hours I wanted to spend on this story for like how much money it was going to make, those feelings would be replaced by a sense of certainty. And now I understand that like, the uncertainty is always a part of it. And actually, that's what is so fun about it. Like, that's what's so valuable. And that's what makes it great. Well, yeah, I think, you know, when you're in the creative field, like those who find success, and I think it's important to like define success, it doesn't always have to be monetary, it can be, you know, in many different forms. But those who find that success often understand the realities of you know, being in the creative field, I just watched this video of this, you know, young girl, and hopefully she takes this opportunity to learn and listen, where she was begging her followers. It's like, I'm a creative person, I will literally die if I worked in a uh, work a nine to five, like you need to support me or otherwise I would literally die. And it's like, you know, a lot of what she was saying as far as like being creative and the the teardown that, you know, this typical quote unquote nine to five can do on your creative self. And I think, you know, she was really 
honing in on a correct message there, but then, you know, taking it to the extreme of like, you're literally going to die if you worked a nine to five really shoves into the face of everyone who's working a nine to five. But as long as you're willing to, you know, really understand the realities of what it means to create and understand that, you know, like you said, sometimes you're going to fail and sometimes failure is part of the process of creating, you know, the best way as I'm learning Spanish as well, the best way is just kind of infuse yourself within those communities and just be like, I only know basics, but I'm going to go in with the basics and I'm going to find a community that's willing to support me. And I'm willing to trust that that community is going to support me. And through that, I'm going to learn a lot faster than, you know, sitting on Duolingo every morning and trying to learn a language through, you know, something that's not as personal. And I really liked, you know, and why I wanted to bring it up is just like, what you wrote really spoke to the aspect of this show. And like, regardless of how many people listen to this show, the conversation you and I are having and the process of getting to this conversation and feeling comfortable within this conversation is something that energizes me. Like after every episode, I'm like, yeah, let's go conquer the world, you know, but it's because I'm able to have these wonderful conversations like people like yourself and it's come through a lot of failure and a lot of, all right, I'm sending this out and, you know, only my mom's listening to it. And it's like, okay, thanks mom for supporting the show. But also, you know, a part of being creative is being vulnerable and great artists created through, you know, vulnerability in a way. And so it's always this experience of, all right, I'm understanding and I'm learning along the way. And as long as I'm taking what I'm learning and adding it to whatever next thing I work on, I'm going to be okay. Yeah, definitely. Beautifully put. Well, Lizzie, we have now gotten to my favorite part of the podcast where I get to hand my show over to you, you know, my beautiful creation that I've worked and worked on through failures and the trials and tribulations of being a creative to close out the show, however you deem fit. And, you know, as we head into the holidays, you can get in some, you know, wonderful practice on tying the bow, you know, metaphorical in this case. Lizzie, you know, the lights are hot. So is the earth, unfortunately. The mic is live and the floor is yours. <laughs> I think like one theme that I think ties together a lot of what we've been talking about today is the importance of imagination and just how, like, how many possibilities are already around us if we can just let ourselves see them, like whether that's imagining um, the past in a more diverse and rich and exciting way or imagining the future as like full of possibilities and not just depressing <laughs> like tragedies, you know, like inevitable tragedies. If we can allow our imaginations to like see beyond these frameworks that we've been taught and also just allow for the idea that nothing that has happened was inevitable and nothing that will happen is inevitable, you know? And like, I think looking at the past is great practice for that. Like thinking about like really trying to see all of these past apocalypses that we talked about just past societies, like as kind of contingent and, you know, kind of a miracle in and of themselves that they happened at all. And like that things never had to go just one way. There was never, ever, ever just one possibility for the route that history was going to take. And I think that that like practicing that in, in the past is like, allows you to see the future as well. in like a very liberating way, I think that like nothing is predetermined, nothing has to go the way that we think it's going to go. Like we have a lot of power and agency to change it. And, and I think that that just is how I try to 
see the world every day. And it, it mm-hmm. is actually very hard, <laughs> but doing so <laughs> is just creates so much more possibilities that I find. And I find that a much more exciting space to live in than the alternative. Well, no, I appreciate you sharing that. I appreciate you being on the show today, you know, history and archaeology and like understanding, you know, the impacts of the past on our future, on our present, you know, the impacts of our present on our past are always like such a cool topic for me to look into and talk about, you know, obviously we didn't talk enough about the Roman Empire, but maybe, you know, we'll have to have (laughs) you on again and specifically talk about the Roman Empire, you know, maybe we can bring in, you know, Caesar and how he colonized the Gauls and like what that situation was like. Um, But no, you know, on a more serious note, I very much appreciate the conversation and kind of getting to, you know, explore these things and, you know, doing so in such a cool and fun way. Thank you for having me. It was a real A real pleasure, really fun. Listeners, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, the show will be over. Peace! This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not, because they're real. (laughs) 